Flip classrooms allow for class time to be used to put content into action. In this episode, we look at one instructor's team-based approach that emphasizes real-world skills important to the field. Thanks for joining us for Tea for Teaching, an informal discussion of innovative and effective practices in teaching and learning. This podcast series is hosted by John Kane, an economist, and Rebecca Mushter, a graphic designer, and features guests doing important research and advocacy work to make higher education more inclusive and supportive of all learners. Our guest today is Tina Abadi. Tina is a clinical assistant professor at Stony Brook University School of Nursing. She holds a collection of credentials, including a PhD, MPA, and MS, and is a registered nurse. She teaches in-person and online undergraduate nursing classes at Stony Brook and conducts research on active learning strategies and the retention of information. She works as a nursing supervisor at two local hospitals. She is the recipient of the 2023 SUNY FACT-2 Award for Excellence in Instruction and was a recipient of the Stony Brook University Award for Excellence in Teaching and In-Person Course. Welcome, Tina. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me here today. We're very happy to see you again. We saw you at the SUNY Conference on Instruction in Technology, or CIT, about a month or so ago. And our teas today are, Tina, are you drinking tea? I am. I am drinking a chai tea. Very good. That sounds nice and warming. Yeah. It's a little chilly here, although it's summer and it was hot yesterday. It is not hot today. (laughs) Yes, for sure. The weather's been very odd. So I have my tea for teaching mug today and in it, I think actually a mix of a couple of different black teas because I switched when I had a half a cup left. (laughs) So I'm not sure what we call this today, but it's a mix of black teas. That sounds delicious. Well, it sounds like a great tea to have while discussing blended learning. A high quality blend. (laughs) (laughs) And we're having a real cold spell here in Durham, North Carolina. The temperature has dropped down to 87 today. And I'm drinking a tea forte, black currant tea. It's a nice summer tea. It is. So we've invited you here today to discuss your use of active learning tools. But before we jump into that, we were curious about your wide range of degrees, credentials, and certifications. We didn't even list them all. Can you share a little bit about your pathway into your current position at Stony Brook? Sure. Well, when I went back to grad school, I certainly didn't intend to get three graduate degrees. I had gotten into Binghamton and gotten into their BS to PhD program because I wanted to do research. And my ultimate goal was to do executive leadership position at a hospital because I really enjoyed the leadership role of nursing. So just to backtrack, I graduated Binghamton University in the year 2000 and started right in the NICU, neonatal ICU at Stony Brook. And I worked as a NICU nurse for six years. And in that time, I knew that I wanted to go back to school. And like I said, I got into the BS to PhD program at Binghamton. They awarded me a fellowship program. So I moved from Long Island. My daughter was one at the time. And I started my education there at Binghamton and continued it for the graduate program. And about a year into my doctoral studies, they had asked if I wanted to teach clinical. And I've taught on other capacities. I used to teach violin and piano when I was younger, and I never really thought of teaching as a career goal for me. However, I was a poor graduate student, 
And I said, sure, I'll do it. And I had about six students in the NICU. I was teaching clinical and I don't know, something came over me. I found my professional soulmate. Something clicked so hard for me in that clinical that I wanted more. So I continued asking for teaching assignments and it's hard to articulate the feeling that you have, but I felt like I found my niche. And so I did clinical instructoring for about six years. And then I moved into the classroom setting. So at that time, I still worked as a nursing supervisor. So I enjoyed the leadership role. And Binghamton started a dual master's degree program where you get your master's in nursing with a concentration, whatever you wanted. I chose education. And the other part of the dual degree was a master of public administration. So I was the first cohort to move through that program. So I graduated first with my master's of science in nursing, and my functional role was educator. Then two years later, I completed the master of public administration, and then eventually the PhD. And it all just aligned so perfectly in my current career because obviously I'm an academic at heart through and through. So those degrees have assisted me in that role. I still work in administration. I teach research. I teach leadership and management. So all of the degrees I've utilized and I still utilize actively every day. So this pathway was kind of carved out for me, I think. And I just feel very fortunate that I'm able to apply all of the degrees that I've gone for. At the SUNY Conference on Instruction and Technology, you gave a presentation on how you structure your courses. And you mentioned that you were using a flipped team-based learning class structure. Can you tell us a little bit about how your classes are structured and what a typical class day would look like in one of your classes? Sure. So any class that I'm involved in or coordinate, the structure that I utilize is a flipped team-based learning approach. And this essentially requires students to prepare prior to coming to class. It has some benefits there. There's flexibility. Students can learn at their own pace. It really amps up the student responsibility for learning, as we know. And then it also gives us the opportunity for higher level learning because they're interacting with the concepts outside prior to class. And the team-based part of it I like is because that increases that collaboration among students. We know that nursing Healthcare is a team sport, so I like to engage the students in teamwork so that they can collaborate and work on their team dynamics and their own personal team skills. So how my classes operate is prior to each class, students complete a set of videos, and they're interactive videos, they're accessible videos for all types of learners, and it carries weight in their grade. So basically, in these pre-class videos, students get a little voiceover content from me about a concept, and then they get tested on it using a variety of types of questions, matching, true-false, multiple-choice, hotspots, you name it. As they move through the videos, they are taking notes on a note-taking guide, so all the concepts are there for them to just follow along, take notes. So they're seeing, hearing, they're doing something as they move through the videos. And that note-taking guide eventually acts as a study guide for them because they have to take a quiz every single class. So they complete these videos before class. And then I start each class with a micro-lecture review using Kahoot, which is just a game-based learning platform. And in this micro-lecture review, I'm really drilling down 
to the concepts and helping these students reconcile any last residual confusion that they may have about these concepts. And then after the Kahoot, they take a quiz. Now, since they've interacted with the concepts so many times prior to taking this quiz, I push the level of the questions in these quizzes. There are 15 questions, and I try to push the level as high as I can, and the students are able to rise to the occasion because they are not hearing the information for the first time when they walk into class. They have a vague sense of the concepts. We nail it down, and then they take the quiz. After the quiz, the rest of class is comprised of team-based activities. And that's how every class looks like for me. Can you talk a little bit more about the embedded questions that you have in the videos and how students have responded to that aspect of the flipped classroom? Absolutely. I use a program called Articulate 360. Articulate 360 has many different types of functions in it, but I focus more on the storyline aspect of this product where I'm able to set up these video clips. So if you already have voiceovers, you can basically chop up that voice over into different bits, put it into a story, the type of file that they reference there. And then in between each clip, you can embed any type of quiz question that you could possibly imagine. And you can set up different parameters. So for example, I like to elevate the stakes a little bit. So the student for these pre-class videos, the grade that counts is their first pass. So it's not like they can retake the video for a higher grade. It's whatever they get at the end of that first pass of the video is the grade that counts. And they have two opportunities to answer each quiz question correctly. And I also embed a lot of feedback. So if they get the answer wrong, they'll see a pop-up with some review. And then if they still got it wrong or they got it right, then there's an explanation that pops up for the right answer. So I do survey my students in the middle of the semester using a Google form and then at the end using this university platform. And the feedback about the videos has been very positive. They really do appreciate, even though it means extra work, I'm still not giving them 20 chapters to read. I'm giving them something that passes along a bit more quickly and has a better chance of sticking in their memories. And they also appreciate the note-taking guide because it also becomes a study guide, not just for the quiz, but for the final exam at the end. I feel like I've counted four or five layers of accountability on that same content. Exactly. (laughs) We've got the note-taking guide, we've got the embedded questions, and we've got the Kahoot, and then we've got the quiz, and then the exam at the end. Yeah. So it's all about building on these concepts, having the knowledge, and then being able to apply it in the classroom. In your presentation, you mentioned that you were de-identifying the names of students taking the Kahoot, but maintaining a leaderboard in the classroom. Could you tell us a little bit about how that works? So Kahoot is based on answering the questions correctly or incorrectly, and part of the score is how quickly you answer the question. So ideally, you want to answer quickly and answer the questions correctly. So at the end of the Kahoot, they get a score. And just again, to raise the stakes, students have to hit a certain benchmark of points to receive full credit. And I try to push that benchmark a little bit, not to make it impossible, but just to make it a little bit challenging for them to give them something to work towards. So for example, in one semester, they have to reach 70,000 points to get the full credit, and then it's prorated from there. So every time I have a class, I load the data into 
this program that was built by our Center for Excellence in Learning and Teaching on campus. One of the computer scientists was able to put this leaderboard, showed me how to upload the files, which are basically just CSV files. And what it does is this leaderboard shows their rank in the class, their total score, and the score for that week so that they can monitor their progress. And everybody else is de-identified in random words, but they can see their name and they could see their rank in the class. And one of the advantages, I think, of using Kahoot is it does provide some practice in developing automaticity so that students can practice retrieving information quickly, which I would think would be especially important in healthcare situations. Absolutely. And I'll have some students that come to me and they just absolutely despise Kahoot because of the stress. And if you've ever taken a Kahoot, and I have, it is stressful. You have to really think on your feet very quickly, especially since your score is based on how fast you answer the question. So what I tell them from the beginning is if you really are struggling with Kahoot and you don't like Kahoot, Kahoot is really for you. It's meant for you because I want you to think of a situation in a hospital setting. If a patient is deteriorating, we call something called a rapid response and a team of people flow to the room to address whatever issue it is, perhaps the patient's having difficulty breathing, whatever, chest pain. This now has become a very emergent situation. And in that situation, you have to be as the primary nurse or a nurse assisting someone else, you have to have laser focus. And someone may ask you to just go get a piece of gauze. And if you're new in the role, you may be so flustered just by getting that piece of gauze. So this is really like a precursor to that. So I tell the students to use Kahoot as a mechanism to help with your laser focus in situations where the outcome is dependent on what you're doing. Another thing that seems really relevant to a healthcare setting is the team-based learning aspect of your course. Can you talk a little bit about how you arrange the team-based activities and also how you set your students up for success on teams? So with team-based learning, as we know, it's simply a collaborative learning strategy and how the team activities look depends on the course. So I can talk to you about my research course that happens every fall semester and I have 160 students. This is the graduating class. These are the seniors. They're in their last two semesters of the program. And what we do in that course is the team-based activity portion of class is working on a project. So I'll tell you a little bit about the project, which is experiential in nature. Stony Brook University is attached to Stony Brook University Hospital. So every year I pick a unit, I meet with the manager, and they give us a clinical problem to solve. So for example, this fall, the students and I will be working with the surgical ICU and the clinical topic is nurse well-being. So as we know, we're in this post-pandemic world and well-being has really moved to the forefront. Things like burnout, compassion fatigue is very prevalent in the healthcare environment and just globally as humans, I think we're just a little tired <laughs> of living in this fight or flight for so long. So now we're trying to come back from this. So this fall semester, the students will be working in teams to find a solution for the surgical ICU for nurse well-being. So what we do is we search for articles together, and that's how they get to their solution. We use a framework. We use Melnick's seven steps for evidence-based practice. So in undergrad nursing, 
even though it's called the Nursing Research Course, the students are expected to utilize the research that has been done on a topic to make changes to their practice. Our expectation is not for them to actually conduct research. That's a PhD level thing. But according to our essentials in baccalaureate nursing, that our accrediting body tells us what curriculum to teach to the students. The expectation is that they know how to read the research, how to critique it, how to appraise it, how to synthesize it, and how to use the research to develop solutions. So from there, they work in teams of eight throughout the semester. They develop their solution. They put it into a video project, a six-minute video project, and I choose the top two projects. Those top two projects then move on to the implementation phase. So then the unit will implement and evaluate the solution. And in addition to that, we put in for posters at conferences. For example, last year, we had two posters at ENRS. I was assigned the course of research. I was like, oh boy, how am I going to make this interesting? Because we know that research content can be a bit dry. So I ran the course for a couple of years and I knew that I had to do something with it. And that's where I started moving towards more experiential learning opportunity for the students. And so far, it's been going really well. So I heard you say something about teams of eight and I almost maybe had a heart attack. I was <laughs> thinking about how big that team is and how to manage that. Can you talk a little bit about some of the structures you have in place to help a group that size, which is relatively large, be successful? Sure. So teams of eight, that means I have 20 teams in total, and we're all reviewing the same articles. So then I know the answers to all the questions. And basically, Google Drive is my answer. Every team has their own folder. Within that folder are subfolders. I have them buddy up and be assigned to a certain number of articles. As a team, they have like individual and buddy responsibilities, which is clearly articulated in a contract that they review and fill out at the beginning of the semester. So they have individual responsibilities, buddy responsibilities, and they have team responsibilities. And every single class looks the same. So by the second class, they're already into the mode. I don't throw them any curveballs. Every class structure is exactly the same. So they know what to expect. And they have appraisal forms to fill out. They have tables to fill out as a team to keep all of their literature organized. And the structure that I have in place seems to be working because there's very little confusion now that I've kind of worked out all of the kinks. And I also always keep instructions projected just to make sure that they are apprised of the flow of class. You mentioned Melnick's seven steps of evidence-based practice. Could you give us a brief overview of that framework? Absolutely. So there's many evidence-based practice models out there. Stony Brook goes with Melnick. And there are seven steps. And actually, they begin with step zero. Step zero is igniting that spirit of inquiry. And that's one of my main end goals of the course is for them to stay curious about how they can improve practice as a nurse for their patients. So that's step zero. And then basically what we do is we take the clinical problem and then we frame it in the form of a question, a PICO question, and that helps us to find our articles. So once we find our articles, we go through the articles, we decide what we're going to keep, what we won't want to keep. Then we start to critically appraise these articles, review them, read them, understand them. The students put that information into a literature review table, which is just the main elements of each article. 
after we've appraised all of the articles, the next step is to synthesize all of the articles. So what is the bigger picture? For that synthesis class, students do complete synthesis tables. And when they create these synthesis tables, now the beginnings of their proposed solution begin to emerge. So then students put their solution together based on the synthesis table. And then the next step in this process is to implement the solution and then evaluate the solution. And of course, dissemination is always the last step. You also mentioned that you use collaborative testing on exams. I've done this with a two-stage exam process where people take the exam individually first and then submit that, but then take it again as a group. And that's been tremendously successful. It also appears to have been really beneficial in terms of student learning. And it's just so much more fun to watch the students work in groups on exams than it is to go over the exam the next day with the whole class. That collaborative exam format has been so much better than I ever expected it to be. Could you tell us a little bit about how you do collaborative testing on your exams? I absolutely adore collaborative testing. If you have to assess students using exams, this is really maximizing the use of exams. So in my courses, students take collaborative exams in teams of three. And as we know, the research says that Collaborative testing may decrease test-taking anxiety. These students have to take a large licensing exam at the end of the program, so it may help some of these students with that. Like you said, immediate feedback on test performance, it really scales back the number of questions. I don't even do exam reviews anymore because the immediate feedback that they get, they've reconciled any confusion on the exam that an exam review is no longer required. It increases student engagement, collaboration. I love how they, like you said, they debate, they discuss that peer instruction. There are some people out there who can read a book and retain 100%, but generally speaking, you'll have a better chance of retaining more information if you're teaching someone else versus reading a book. And of course, that just varies learner to learner. So that could be really something to hone in on when it comes to collaborative testing. So yes, the traditional way is to take the test individually, and then they take it again in a team. And in our program, the clinical courses like medical, surgical, nursing, pediatrics, all of those, I would always recommend to do individual then collaborative because you really want to assess that individual on their performance and understanding of the concepts. Since I teach research and I teach leadership and management, these are non-clinical courses, I skip the individual part and take them right to a collaborative exam. So for example, for my research course, the students don't know who they are paired up with or in a team with until about an hour before the exam. They get two articles, a quantitative article and a qualitative one, and then they have a set of questions to answer. Essentially, we've been preparing for this type of exam throughout the semester, so they end up doing really well. In my transitions to professional practice where I'm teaching leadership and management, That is a traditional final exam, multiple choice, select all that apply type of questions. And again, they actually do it on Zoom. They go into breakout rooms, they share their screen and they take the exam. There's a scribe who enters the answers. And also when it comes to accommodations, kind of as a side note, I've been able to set up strategies for individuals that do have accommodations so that they can maximize their experience as well. 
When I first tried this, I was so excited about how the students were reacting with the collaborative exam that I took a short video clip while they were doing it and sent it to Rebecca. She was working with me in the teaching center at the time. It was just such a remarkably positive experience. Do you notice a difference, like a, I would say an estimate of 10 points between the individual and the collaborative mean? Generally, yeah. And the group one is virtually always higher than each individual score, except in one case in my class where one student had a higher score than his group. And that's because during the group discussions, the student gave in to peer pressure within the group. I encourage him to be more assertive when he's confident about his answer. But that only happened with one student on one exam. It's pretty rare. I just love just watching them engage like that. So I'll pop into like the breakout sessions and they're collaborating and negotiating and just fantastic. You mentioned earlier about your research class having a project coming up about well-being. And I think that's a topic that we've been talking a lot about in higher ed in a lot of situations. Can you talk a little bit more about that project and some of the research that's going into it and some of the outcomes of it? Absolutely. I mean, well-being is such a hot topic right now and probably every type of job you could think of. And it's interesting, well-being has kind of always been in the background. And I think the pandemic really shoved it into the forefront where it really should have been. That really needs to be, in my opinion, the top priority of any workplace, because if your employees are well, it has a positive trickle-down effect. So it has gotten to the point now where our accrediting body who tells us the essentials that we need to teach to our students, they have added a wellness component. And we're adopting these new essentials in the next year. These are our new essentials for us to follow. So it made it into the essentials, which is very telling. And now faculty are charged with teaching students, monitoring students about their wellness and well-being. So this was pretty timely. Because of the pandemic, the clinical topic that we've been doing for this EBP project has been things like compassion fatigue, burnout, and now this year we're doing well-being. Last fall, we worked with the cardiothoracic ICU, and the EBP project topic was compassion fatigue. And we wove in a lot of well-being into the solution, which is actually kicking off on July 1st. So this year, instead of doing compassion fatigue, which has a bit of a negative connotation, let's flip it to the positive. And like I said, we're working with the surgical ICU and we want to customize a wellness solution for that unit. So in the meantime, by proxy, I can teach the students about their own well-being and their own wellness. So I have a lot of content in there so that they're learning about this clinical topic to help develop a solution, but they're also learning about it for themselves. And I do a few things with them, and I'm definitely evolving this as we move along. And I'm lucky enough that I have the graduating class in the fall and the spring, so I move it through from the fall to the spring semester. So in addition, in educating them on the different ways to promote your own wellness. We start each class with a mindfulness activity. I have a sound bowl that actually a student gifted to me. We do meditation, mindful breathing. Every class is something different. This year, I'm inviting students to lead some of these sessions. So I want it to grow so that other students can participate and lead us. And it's literally three to five minutes at the beginning of every class. 
all lights down, devices off, phones flipped down, and we just take that time to be as present as possible. And I also help them keep an eye on their level of burnout, and I give them the professional quality of life survey at the start of every class. And halfway through, I'll do a comparison of statistics between the different cohorts because I have the traditional cohort and I have the accelerated one. We look to see how our scores are doing over time just to have that educational component to it. And then also the Insight Timer app, that's an app that you don't have. I would highly recommend that you download it. It has so many mindfulness type of activities that you can do. There's a journal, you can track your progress. They have classes and even the paid version, which is, I think, maybe $60 for the year. They offer so many different bells and whistles. It's really just a phenomenal app to use if you're looking to promote your own wellness. So the other thing I wanted, I attended that CIT conference is I would love to use chat GPT to develop a wellness assignment. So I'm still thinking about the inner machinations of how that would work. But hey, you know, if AI is here, might as well see if we can use it to promote well-being. <laughs> and it's nice to have the focus of using ChatGPT positively because this is something that's going to be part of students' lives going forward. Maybe not the specific tool, but AI tools are not going to disappear and using them for good would be a nice alternative for the concerns that many faculty have about the use of these tools. During your presentation at the CIT conference, you also mentioned using a variety of EdTech tools. What are some of the tools that you use in your classes? Sure. So I have trialed some apps here and there. I've used Plotagon. I use GoAnimate for schools, which is now Vion, just for them to create case scenarios in their leadership and management class. And based on feedback, the one that they really liked is now a bit pricey. So I tried a free version of an app and it really didn't go well based on feedback. And that's how it works in education. You try something out and you survey the students. And if the experience over time is really not positive, you need to move on to something else. But things that really have stuck is I told you about Kahoot and Articulate 360. How I communicate with the students, I use GroupMe. I prefer to communicate with them using that application over Brightspace or traditional email. They join via QR code and I have them all in one group chat and I can post quickly. They could send me direct messages. They could post questions in our group chat. And it just seems to really streamline communication because we're all competing for their cerebral real estate. They have a lot going on, a lot of deadlines. So I find that this GroupMe app is really helpful. And I also try not to spam them with too many messages. So it really seems to work. And then again, Google Drive, I can't even begin. Google Drive for everything, whether I want to survey them or whatever it is, Google Drive has it for us. So speaking of Google, <laughs> you mentioned earlier using a Google form for a mid-semester evaluation. Can you talk a little bit more about that and how you've used that to make adjustments in your class for the latter half of the semester? Sure. So a Google form is a pretty nice way to just give a quick survey to your students. I do that in the middle of the semester and have to tell you that's where I get my best data. 
because they are in the throes of it. And my response rate is typically over 90% as compared to at the end where they're kind of just fizzling out, tired, maybe a bit over it, generally speaking. So I don't get the response rate in the final that I do in the mid-semester. When I analyze it, it's very short, a couple Likert questions. What do you like? What don't you like? And if there's enough of a theme in the qualitative questions or in the Likert scales, I'm able to make changes prior to them departing from me instead of waiting for the next cohort to come in. You know, for example, some things that came up was can be a, a bit loud in the classroom. So I've done something to control the volume in there because it's a very active classroom. Or we feel like we're sitting around too long during the TPL activities. So now I have a mechanism for them to let me know when they're done with their activities so that they're not sitting around waiting. So those types of things. They say, let's skip the final exam. Then that's not anything that I can honor. But I've gotten some really good raw feedback that's helped me evolve my classes. I'm so, always so grateful for the student experience because they inform me where this needs to go. Another way that I use a Google form is with team-based learning, Michelson says that you should have the team members evaluate each other on their team performance. And typically this is done at the end. But I like to do it in the middle of the semester where they're evaluating each other so that they have an opportunity to remediate. And then by the end, hopefully their team's performance scores have gone up. The challenge, though, with a Google form is it's very hard for me to share the feedback back to the students. It requires a lot of copying and pasting, and there's a lot of room there for error, human error. So currently, I do bring in the students that are rated poorly just to give them some one-on-one -on -one guidance on how to improve their team performance. But in the meantime, to work around that, I did trial a product called Critic that offers that ability where the students will get their feedback back. But I reached out to our Center for Excellence in Learning and Teaching. And right now what we're doing, we have a sandbox and we're working on trying to do a critic-like type of peer evaluation in Brightspace using PeerMark. And we're getting very close to ironing out some of the finer details. So I'm going to finally have an evaluation where every student can see their feedback from their team members based on their performance. So they know what they're doing well and where they need to improve. You teach both face-to-face -face and also online. Do you use many of the same techniques in your online classes that you use in your face-to-face -face classes? How do you modify your class for online delivery? So... I do everything the same, except that it's in an asynchronous format. So students really have to be self-disciplined in an asynchronous online type of environment. The online classes that I teach are post-licensure undergrads. So they have their two-year registered nurse license, and they're looking to get their four-year degree. So some of the assignments we tailor a little bit differently just because they have nursing experience, whereas my pre-licensure students do not. So maybe the assignments vary a little bit, but the structure is the same using Articulate. I don't use Kahoot with them only because I don't have them in front of me, but they do have the quiz and they have the TBL activities and things of that nature. So it's the same, but it's just in an asynchronous format. I know that we mentioned in the intro that you do some research on some of your teaching practices. Can you tell us a little bit about some of that work? Sure. So a colleague and myself got IRB approval 
We're just starting to do some research on this evidence-based practice project that the students do in my class. And we're just starting off with a cross-sectional study. We have a valid tool that's been out in the literature that measures their perceived knowledge, skills, and attitudes regarding evidence-based practice. So I'm not building logistic regression models or anything yet, but starting off with a cross-sectional study to understand pre and post the beginning of class and at the end of their research class, if there's any impact or change in their knowledge, skills, and attitudes regarding evidence-based practice. So that's where I'm starting, and I'd like to move on from there eventually. And speaking of moving on, our last question is, what's next? So I just would like to continue publishing and presenting and continuing my research. Like I mentioned earlier, I'd like to introduce an AI tool for well-being. And Stony Brook just purchased several VR headsets. And because my courses include a lot of content about compassion, wellness, well-being, I would love to develop a simulation about empathy. I think that would be fantastic use of VR, apart from like typical clinical scenarios. And that's really my plan for now. Well, thank you for joining us. And when you do have some results from your research, we'd love to have you come back and talk about it. Thank you. Definitely. I really appreciate you inviting me. This is a wonderful opportunity for me. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for letting us use your class as a little case study for folks to think about ways that they could change, improve, and reconsider their own classes. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast service. To continue the conversation, join us on our Tea for Teaching Facebook page. You can find show notes, transcripts, and other materials on teafortteaching.com. Music by Michael Gary Brewer.